all of God's commands are invitations for us to embrace the change that He tells us He will do within us. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go and show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household, and Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with water and bread. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land and all the springs of water and all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him, fell on his face and said, Is it you? My Lord Elijah. And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He's not here, He would take an oath of the kingdom or the nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go and tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come to tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although your servant has feared the Lord from my youth. Has has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord Prophets, uh, I'm sorry, a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely I will show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So Ahab is in the darkest and the deepest moment of his life. He is ruling over a kingdom that is absolutely falling apart because this three-year drought now has his population, his people dying by the, the droves. And he seems to be able to do nothing about it, although he has these thousand prophets that are feverishly praying for rain. He seems to be able to do nothing about it. 
But Ahab cannot look to the Lord. He can't do that because he has made himself a stranger to the Lord. So he cannot look to God. Neither can he look to himself, to his own heart. The only thing that he can do, as we talked about last time, is look to the grass and look to his horses and look to his mules and see maybe what he can say because his horses and his mules are more important to him than the lives of the people that God has entrusted into his care. And then he meets with Elijah and Elijah and Obadiah both serve as examples of those who are able to search their own hearts for sin within their own hearts. But Ahab is unable to do this. So even though he is the cause of all the suffering, or at least he leads the charge in being the cause of all this suffering, he cannot examine his own heart, neither can he look to the Lord for repentance or forgiveness. And so this picks us up here in the story as we begin here in verse 16. And we'll begin by seeing Obadiah's seared consciousness, his Hardened, seared conscience. First of all, we begin from verse 16. Obadiah went to meet Ahab, told him the news that he was afraid would be his death, but he told him this news, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So Elijah doesn't, of course, disappear. The Lord doesn't whisk him away. He meets with Elijah. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Last week we noted the fact that that word troubler sometimes is translated viper or snake serpent. We're reminded, of course, of the New Testament counterpart of Elijah, John the Baptist, whom Jesus himself said was here in the spirit of Elijah. We're reminded of his words as he says to the Pharisees, who told you to flee from the coming wrath, you brood of vipers. So this was a serious insult to call Elijah this troubler of Israel. He says, is this you, Elijah? Now, does this mean that he didn't recognize Elijah, wasn't sure whether it was really him, maybe Elijah was dead and this was Elijah's brother pretending to be him or a lookalike or something? Did he not quite recognize him? Is he saying, is that really you? So does he not recognize that this is Elijah? Probably not. He saw him uh, face to face. That was three years ago. So maybe... His features have have faded in Ahab's mind. Maybe Ahab doesn't quite recognize him. He's not quite sure if that's really him. He's only seen him this one time, likely. But that was a pretty monumental encounter. When Elijah stood before him, and you can just imagine the fire in his eyes and just the, the darts coming from his eyes as he's proclaiming, this is the land of the living God. This is His land, His people. And so I proclaim a drought. There will be no rain, no dew until I say so. So you can just imagine that the forcefulness of that encounter made a deep impression on Ahab. So he probably hasn't forgotten his face, so, so to speak. Uh, in addition to that, Obadiah, as we would understand it, introduces Ahab because Elijah was sure to send Obadiah and say, tell Ahab, Elijah's coming. So Ahab shouldn't be surprised. He should know that this is Elijah. So I don't think he's saying, is that really you? Am I, is, it, is it you that I'm recognizing? I think what he's doing is he's making a play on Elijah's name. Remember what Elijah's name means. My God is Yahweh. My Lord is Yahweh. And so he's calling Elijah out. You who say that your God is Yahweh, is that really you? Are you really going to come into my presence and claim that you belong to this 
Yahweh, we've, ta- we've taken care of all of his prophets, all of his priests. And so are you to here to, to claim that he really is alive, as your name says? So when Ahab saw Elijah, he, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You hear the accusation in his voice, the accusation in his word. He's, a, of course, accusing Elijah of being the source of all this problem. So you see here his seared conscience. He greets this man of God with absolute coldness in his heart, with hostility, uh, with this seared conscience that is his. He blames Elijah for uh, the troubles of Israel, but Elijah's conscience is unmoved by this. Um, These judgments that have come upon Israel, the, the drought for three years, the incredible situation that they have lived through now for three years has seemingly had no effect whatsoever on Ahab. It has not softened his heart in the least. In fact, it seems to have even hardened his heart against God. So we think immediately of people like Pharaoh. Remember the story of Pharaoh? Pharaoh, of course, had these ten plagues come against him. Each plague got progressively worse until the the final plague was the taking of the firstborn son. And specifically throughout that entire episode, we're told that, that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Sometimes we're told that his heart was hardened. Sometimes we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes we're told that God hardened his heart. But the point throughout all of that was that these plagues did not soften Pharaoh's heart, but instead they hardened his heart against the living God who was calling for him to repent and to release his people from their bondage and from their slavery. So the judgments of God, the wrath of God, the the judgment of God coming down on Pharaoh as well as on Ahab and the rest of Israel has not brought Ahab into repentance. It has not caused him to open his heart to what the Lord might be saying to him. Instead, it has had the opposite effect. It has hardened his heart. The same famine, the same situation, the same circumstance, the same suffering has grown Elijah's faith and has hardened Ahab's heart. The same suffering has grown Obadiah's faith and has hardened Ahab's heart as well. So how is it that this same judgment has had the opposite effect on different people? The judgments of God, the wrath of God, is intended to bring people to repentance. We read that in God's Word. For example, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Look at the section in, in italics print here. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So this is not God's kindness. This is God's judgment. But nevertheless, the alternative, the opposite, so to speak, of God's judgment, which is God's compassion, God's kindness, Paul says the intention is to lead you to repentance. So we know that God's purposes are never thwarted. That's what Job tells us. And if God purposes for his kindness to lead people to repentance, then that's what it should do, right? Likewise, we read the same thing about God's judgment. Look from Isaiah chapter 26, verses 9 and 10. Again, the italics print tells us, For when your judgments are are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. When your judgments come to the earth, the people who live on the earth learn righteousness. So there you go. There's this twofold testimony that God's blessings bring repentance and God's judgments bring repentance. So our question will be, well, why didn't this work for Ahab? Until we read the second part of both of those verses. From the Romans passage. 
Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now the Isaiah passage is even clearer. Isaiah chapter 26, For when your righteous judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. So here we go. God sends judgment, God sends kindness, God sends blessing, and His intention for all of this is to bring men and women to repentance, to soften their heart and to lead them to relationship with Him. However, both of those passages tell us that at the very least, it doesn't always happen that way. Instead, the judgments of God and often the time the blessings of God have what seem to be the opposite effect of hardening people's hearts towards God. The judgments of God have have clearly hardened Ahab's heart. And we can also see how oftentimes the kindness of God hardens people's hearts. The kindness of God, which gives to us those things that we not only need, but enjoy in this created world, oftentimes leads people to think, well, what do I need God for? And it actually hardens their heart against repentance. So the takeaway is this. Judgment and blessing in and of themselves have no inherent ability to bring repentance to anyone. Judgment in and of itself has no inherent ability to bring repentance to anyone because repentance is a work of the Spirit specifically on someone's heart. Repentance is given to people, we're told in the Scriptures, as a gift It is the gift of the Spirit that grants us the blessing, the gift that is the gift of repentance. Now, oftentimes the Spirit can use judgments and use kindnesses in order to begin that work in our hearts or maybe open our minds to that, open our hearts to that. But it is the work of the Spirit that brings us repentance. So think about repentance. What is is repentance described to us as in the Scriptures? Repentance is described to us as two things. First of all, it's described as a command. We are commanded to repent. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, right? So we're commanded to repent. But we're also told that repentance is a gift. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, Paul's talking to to Timothy about his opponents there at the church that he's pastoring in Ephesus. And he says, May it may be that God will grant them repentance. Or we think of passages like Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. This is the passage where uh, just a few verses before this is the well-known passage where Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin and they tell them, don't speak about Jesus anymore. And they say, whether this is right for you, you judge for that. But we we think that it's best for us to do what God says, not what you say, right? And then a few verses later, we're told that Peter says that God exalted Jesus in order to give us repentance. And there's other places that we could point to that show us the same thing or similar things, which is this repentance is something that God must do for us. It is a gift that He gives to us. So God commands us to repent, but He also gives us the gift of repentance. How do we process that? How do we put those two things together? That's one of the many paradoxes of salvation. One of the many paradoxes of living 
in a fallen world with a fallen heart while indwelt by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the living God. One of those paradoxes that tells us, well, repentance is something we're commanded to do, but it's also something that God gifts us with, something that God, in other words, does for us. And so as we think about this, we we realize, well, the same thing is true for everything God tells us to do. Everything that we're commanded to do is both a command and the work of God. We're commanded to believe. And we know that belief, faith, is a work of God. It's the gift of God. But yet we're commanded to believe. We're commanded to forgive our enemies. But we also know that that's something that God does in our heart. We're commanded to love our enemies. We're we're commanded all kinds of things in Scripture But at the same time, while being commanded those things, we're also told that those are things that God must do. That's the same for all of God's commandments. And so this is why the 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 theologian Augustine so many uh, centuries ago put it this way, Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. He understood that God has all kinds of commandments for His people, but all of those commandments are what He does for us. So here's the takeaway for this. The takeaway is this. God commands and God grants. He commands us and He gives. What this tells us is for the Christian, true, real change is not only possible, but it's guaranteed. Do you realize that we live in a world that everyone, everyone wants to change themselves? Every human being who is alive, who has ever lived, wants to change themselves. But do you also realize that no one can? No one one can change themselves. We can sometimes change our behavior. Sometimes we can even change the way we think. We can change thinking patterns. But no one can change their heart. And yet everybody does. Everybody, when, when they introspect themselves. When they look into their own heart, they see things that even those who deny God would say, that's really ugly about me. But they cannot change it. No one can. No one can change their own heart. But then comes the Word of God that tells us, love your enemies. Forgive those who sin against you. Love your, your wife or your spouse as Christ loves the church. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be kind and, and merciful to others. And we hear all these commands and we say, oh, I, just, I wish that, that my heart was that way. I wish I was a merciful and compassionate person. But then the truth of Scripture comes to us, bold and clear, and it says, if God has commanded you to do it, He will gift you with that ability. He will do it for you. So all of God's commands are invitations for us to embrace the change that He tells us He will do within us. This is incredibly freeing. When you get your heart around this truth that whatever God commands in His Word, what those are are invitations for you to believe that this is what God is doing in me. That is so freeing. It is so freeing to, to look in your heart and say, but don't, that ugly part about me, 
I've tried and tried and I can't change that. If God commands you to be merciful, if God commands you to be loving, if God commands you to be forgiving, then that's an invitation for us to believe that is what He's doing in your heart. And so Ahab is commanded to repent. But Ahab cannot repent because judgment alone cannot bring repentance to Ahab or anyone else. Neither can blessing alone bring repentance to anyone or salvation or belief or anything else. It requires the Holy Spirit. It requires God gifting Ahab with that repentance. That is an incredibly encouraging thing to get your heart around. So Ahab's seared conscience, Ahab's seared conscience is actually an encouragement for us. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.